This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Should there be a rethink on reservists? I myself have served alongside the Territorial Army on many occasions on operations. They've got some very brave and very capable soldiers. But unfortunately, they're not a substitute in the kind of warfare that we're fighting. They're not a substitute for regular soldiers. Britain gives a stark warning to Iran, and we hear from Sir Keith Porter, the UK's only professor of clinical traumatology. A group of senior military figures has called on the government to rethink plans to rely on increasing numbers of reservists. Earlier this week, in a letter to the Daily Telegraph, they say they support plans to bolster investment for reserve forces, but not at the expense of regular soldiers. They say just one in 20 Territorial Army members is adequately trained to serve on the front line. Colonel Richard Kemp, a former commander in Afghanistan, is one of the signatories. We need... Um adequate numbers of properly trained people who are available at short notice and who are available for long periods if necessary to deploy on operations. And the Territorial Army in, in peacetime, in, in a sort of what's essentially a peacetime world, does not fit that bill. Well, 2010's Defence Review saw a promise to use more TA capabilities to cover the reduction in troop numbers. But the letter says the Ministry of Defence should stop further cuts in army manpower and review the current redundancy programme. Well, I'm joined by Colonel Richard Williams, a former commanding officer of 22 SAS and the co-author of a paper for the policy exchange, which initiated many of the ideas contained within the Future Reserves 2020 report. And Captain Doug Beatty, a former regular soldier, and now a reservist himself. And, of course, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, is also here to join the debate. Hello to all of you. Let's start with you, Colonel Richard Williams. Can we make better use of the TA, do you think? Yes, I certainly think we can. Um, although I should say right now um, how they're being used is very impressive in terms of their individual and, in some case, their subunit uh, collective capability. Um, but as we go forward over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, reserve forces can do an awful lot more than they're doing now. The authors of the letter in the Daily Telegraph have said that the majority of TA soldiers are nowhere near good enough to serve on the front line. Do you agree with that? I think a considerable portion aren't because they're not trained well enough. And one of the reasons they're not trained well enough is since uh, 2006, their training budgets and their recruiting uh, ceilings have been cut down to the bone. Um, so as units, and in some cases as individuals, uh, they don't represent the TA that they could represent. The government's saying they will invest in training. They say they cheaper doesn't necessarily mean they won't be as good. Uh, do you agree with that? Because certainly those who sign the letter don't think that they will be up to the job. Yeah, at I short do. notice, at least. Well, yes, I mean, going back to Richard Kemp's point about short notice, is what is it you need at very short notice for interventions? Uh, you need um, forces held at very high uh, levels of readiness by training and fitness and competencies and capabilities, and there will be a small number of territorial specialists that can be involved at that very high readiness level. But as operations go on, as our American, Canadian and Australian cousins and fellow uh, comrades in arms uh, have discovered, particularly in Iraq and latterly in Afghanistan, is you need to have more men than your regular forces, as they stand in peacetime, um, are available. And so you um, mobilize your reserves and you have them do the enduring operations or complement the enduring operations that go on and on and on, as people realize. Doug Beattie, you're in the TA. Are the recommendations set out in this review, the FR20, workable? 
Uh, absolutely. I, I think they are workable. I think the, the letter in the Telegraph really does focus on the negative and really doesn't investigate the positive and what the TA can do. I think there's two points to really look at here. First of all, presently today, fighting in Afghanistan, we are producing huge amounts of individual reinforcements and they're doing a fantastic job. I think the problem goes to when we go to contingency uh, and the TA isn't necessarily laid down well to do contingency, but then neither is the British Army. But what the TA can do is they can take the burden off the regular army so the regular army can, can prepare for contingency. And I'll give you some examples. Nothing would stop a reinforcement company for the Falklands coming from the TA. Operation Tosca in Cyprus can come from the TA. Short-term training teams around the world, and I've just come back from one in Uganda, training Ugandans to go to Somalia can be done by the TA. When the famine strike took place in 2002, that could have been done by the TA. And by the TA being able to do all of these tasks, it frees up the regular army to be ready for contingency. To me, it makes absolute sense. Christopher Lee, how best do you think the TA can be used in times when cuts do have to be made to the regular army? What we've got to understand is that the concepts that we've lived with for the past 30, 40 years have changed, um, certainly after the Cold War. At one time, you thought you might go to, you know, war with, uh, with, with, with the Soviet forces and, you know, the 31 or whatever it was, group of Soviet forces in Germany. The concept of the TA was all different. We're now talking about, say, asymmetrical warfare. You then start to look at the specialists. Now, for example, I mean, Gunnar Williams' is, is, is his own experience, two of the regiments in that special force were TA regiments. They're highly trained and highly specialist. But when we think about it, we're talking about people that can transfer more easily, are more easily trained, the medics, interrogators, linguists, people that you can say, right, we can slot you in. And if you develop that over all three services, that becomes even more, more important. There is another aspect of this. The training time is not just a question of training budgets is actually how well the TA can be organised to do in the old-fashioned sort of idea of, let's say, a drill night plus two weeks camp every year. How much they can keep up with the specialist requirements of modern forces. And also remember that they're not all frontline troops. I mean, even the regular uh, army isn't all there on the front line. Colonel Williams, it's a very valid point, isn't it? Because it would require people to make a huge commitment, a bigger commitment than at the moment. It would not be territorial army as a hobby. It would be a way of life, wouldn't it? Which employers would have to accept as well. Yeah, I think the discussions with the employers is an important thing that underpins the, uh, uh, the policy going forward. Um, but I, I just sort of echo what kind of everyone said thus far is the Territorial Army, as it is currently configured, is doing an amazing job. But as we go forward, and we wish to use specialists, as you outline, or, in my view, um, form whole units that can deploy to carry the burden of operations beyond the initial regular imp implement, if you like, um, we have to reorganise. As you say, it's not just re resources, it's reorganisation, it's leadership, it's a whole new game. Um, and it does change that which is offered to the citizen when he is sitting and saying, I wish to serve this country. Doug Beattie, overall, we're talking about reorganisation, retraining of people, changing of structures. Do you think it would overall save money for the country? 
Well, well, it's going to save money. You know, it just makes absolute sense. That there is a, a reserve force, it is a part-time force, but it does need to be restructured so that we can get the best out of it. Legislation has to be looked at. It has to be changed. The TA has to be brought in line with the regular army. This nonsense of being able to recruit a soldier into the TA up to the age of 43 must be looked at. It must be dropped down to what the regular service does. Um, and then we need a step change in the way we train. Um, having having a, an output from a TA unit, which is the absolute basic for an infantry soldier, is just not good enough. There has to be better output training for, for, for units. Christopher Lee. Do you know, I, I sat on one of the TAVRA boards at one time in the NEL, what used to be NELCA with the employers, National Employers um, uh, Coordinating lot. And it was very, very simple. If you're an employer uh, at one time when you didn't have lots of operations that you needed TA to go on, he said, great stuff, send the guy away for a weekend. I get somebody who's much better in back in the office or the shop floor on Monday. But suddenly people are starting to talk about people going, going away for six months. Um, the employer says, well, okay, I'm willing to be you know, very patriotic about this, but we've got to think about this person's uh, career uh, function. And so it's perhaps looking to do something entirely different. I mean, I think it through, the natural, natural place to put territorial army is in your territory and give them far more of homeland security roles, perhaps. And also remember, it's not all, uh, it's not all infantry roles that they're going to be asked to do. And so that combination of the needs of the companies, the needs of the careers for what is essentially a civilian when he's not in uniform, and also another part of it, when he comes back or she comes back, let's say, from an operation somewhere, to say, right, you just don't go off. You've still got to be part of the organisation that, that you went with. And that is particularly important, especially sometimes it takes a long time to cool down from which you've been in uh, Hellman, for example. Uh, Doug Beattie, do you get the sense that if there were to be a greater commitment required from people who join the TA, that there would be the interest, the, the new blood that's needed to, to fulfil the role that's going to be required of them? There is, and, and, and I've got to say, I'm, I'm in the TA, there's a huge excitement within the TA about the roles that are, that are coming up and the added investment, but that has to be a proper added investment. We need to really look at what we want from our soldiers who are in the Territorial Army. We have to look at health care, we have to look at dental care. Um, we, we have to reduce this recruiting age, like I've already said. We have to get proper terms and services for these young men so that they can get a pension at the end of their service within the TA. Colonel Richard Williams, when do you think we're going to get the, the actual detail exactly on how this is going to be worked in terms of the structures? I, I don't have an inside track on that, but my expectation is um, uh, by about May, June of this year. It may come in earlier. Um, and uh, I have to say, listening to everybody talk today, and particularly Doug, the enthusiasm with which this is being grasped, uh, as I have heard around the country, it indicates that uh, people look forward to that structure with great interest. All right, Colonel Richard Williams, Captain Doug Beattie, thank you very much for your time today. Sit rep with Still to come, the Taliban wants to talk and they're setting up an office in Qatar. And we hear from Professor Sir Keith Porter from Birmingham's Queen Elizabeth Hospital on the great advances in the treatment of our war wounded. The FBS Sit Rep. 
The Defence Secretary is warning Iran against blocking a vital shipping lane, saying that any attempt to block the Straits of Hormuz would be illegal and unsuccessful and would be countered militarily. Philip Hammond is in Washington for talks at the Pentagon with his US counterpart, Leon Panetta. It's his first visit there as Defence Secretary. James Hurst has been following the story and joins us now. James, what's Philip Hammond been saying? Well, I've got a copy of his script here. Uh, It's pretty blunt. Disruption to the flow of oil through the Straits of Hormuz would threaten regional and global economic growth, he says. Any attempt by Iran to do this would be, as you say, illegal and unsuccessful. It is, you know, plain talking that Britain and America, uh, among others probably, will not stand for the threat that Iran has made to try and block this route, which carries about a third of the world's shipborne oil. Why has he chosen to do this now? Iran has upped the ante in the last few days. Um, They've had this big Navy exercise in the waters. They threatened at one point to blockade the Straits of Hormuz, and this is because... Um, America has just signed a new law that the way it works effectively means you can't potentially buy oil from Iran. Uh, EU, due to meet this month, the expectation is that they'll have their own sanctions program in. So, you know, EU and America, and this all goes back to Iran's nuclear program, which they say is peaceful and uh, and the West doesn't think it is. Philip Hammond has mentioned the Royal Navy in this. Could they have a role to play? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's talked about the already joint naval presence in the Arabian Gulf, which he says is key to keeping the Straits of Hormuz open. The Royal Navy, he says, will continue to play a substantial role as part of the combined maritime forces, both at the HQ in Bahrain and through mine countermeasure vessels. But, you know, he's he's pointing up they're already there. Uh, and in a sense, you're going to expect people to read into that, that uh, if, if they need to go further than they already are, if the ante is upped further and there is a blockade, then they're ready to do something. Christopher, what do you make of all this? Well, um, first and foremost, the Iranians were going to do this Um, This exercise, for example, and the live firing, and they warned uh, through third parties, the Americans, they were going to do it. Uh, The fact that President uh, Obama was on holiday in Hawaii... So nothing to get worried about because it was... I mean, he wasn't worried enough to come back, for example. No, everybody knew that it was going to happen. Where do we go from here? The 20% of oil that comes through that Homer Strait uh, is also very, very good news for... Uh, the Iranians, because the Iranians rely on so oil. So they're not going to block it, do you uh, say? Do well, there's no reason for them to do it. But in Iran itself, we've got the huge fight going on, political fight. Uh, Ahmadinejad, the president, is actually fighting for his own survival. And this is a military-controlled idea that's, that's going on in the moment. The other thing we got to remember is how much people hold to it. James you know, rightly said the EU is about to sort of uh, say, yes, we will say to people, stop buying oil. But the problem is, you look at the spot price of oil last night on the, on the Rotterdam uh, uh, spot market for oil, it's starting to go up. People are going to say, governments are going to say, and a lot of them are in for elections at the moment, and we're in winter in North Europe at the moment, they're going to say, hey, pr- prices are going up. Where, what happens? It hits the, hits the petrol pumps. Um, that's not good. And so let's watch this. Let's watch this for the next two or three months. And you see by about March, when there is a very big conference, a EU conference uh, taking place, I reckon that whole thing will be blown over. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Philip Hammond's visit comes on the day that the US Defence Secretary announces the results of an eight-month long strategic review. Uh, James, can you tell us more about this review exactly? Yeah, I mean, you remember our SDSR just over a year ago. This is part of that. It's the strategic part that will feed into defence cuts later because uh, 
repositioning for the future is one part of it, but also America's looking to save half a trillion dollars over 10 years because it's got its own financial dire straits. Now, essentially... The, the big change that everybody is uh, seeing from this is a change of America's ambition. It used to be, we've seen them fighting Iraq and Afghanistan. No more. What they're going to work on is the basis that they can have one ground war running and still have the capacity to disrupt a second enemy. But it, it really is quite a shift in what they're saying they need to be able to do. And they think that down the line, they will be able to then do restructuring to save money from that change of ambition. Okay, so change in strategy and a move away from Europe. Yeah, this is uh, part of it. I mean, there's about, I was looking at the numbers, there's about 80,000 US military personnel based in Europe, the bulk vastly in Germany, about 9,000 in the UK. Now, the cuts look like when they come they will hit the the US Army much more and not so much the US Air Force and it's US Air Force here. Uh, The talk is that um, probably one of uh, three combat brigades will leave Europe and go back to the United States. Now there is another part of this which is that America for a long time has been getting increasingly angry with some NATO partners who don't spend the target level on defence and they think they're not carrying their weight. Basically the accusation that's been made is that that they are getting America to pay for Europe's insurance policy. And actually, this is one of the things that Philip Hammond is going to address in his speech. He is saying that Libya and Afghanistan have highlighted this. Too many, Mr Hammond says, are opting out of operations or contributing but a fraction of what they could could or should be capable of. And he says it's a European problem, not American, and it's a military, a political problem, not a military one. All right, Christopher, so a move away from Europe. So where will the US be shifting its focus to? Uh, the Far East. It's moving already to the Far East, which is why it needs to consider its naval power as well. But you see, this the physical side of the, the army... Americans have got at the moment about 570,000 ground troops, soldiers. That's going to cut down to 483, I think. This is what Panetta is likely to talk about. Um, When you consider the actual costs of that, almost a third of the budget is in personnel costs, you know, pay, pensions, retirement pensions, education, etc. That's going to take quite a chunk out of it. The important thing is that he's talking at the moment and will be talking, I suspect about 8%. But I'm going to a meeting in Washington next week, next Tuesday, and they are going to, and this is all the guys that do the button, the number crunching on this, they say that this is going up to 17%. That's more than double what he's going to be talking about in the next couple of days. And there is the problem for the Americans. It's also the problem with us. So, for example, if you cut back on the project projected number of F-35 aircraft, you, you then raise the unit cost of them. What happens when we want to buy into the five, uh, F-35, which we do, mm. we're going to have to uh, uh, spend more on it. The price starts to go up. This becomes, not just for that, but in other things. The other thing he's going to be looking at is the nuclear capability. We've got a direct interest in that. So the knock-on into the United Kingdom defence spending, at a time when you've got Philip Hammond saying the biggest problem is economics, not an enemy... Uh, therefore, you see that what uh, Panetta is saying this week, what the president will be saying, because he has to put his budget to Congress in a couple of weeks' time, what the president will be saying, we ought to listen up because it affects us. Is that the key reason why Philip Hammond, has, the Defence Secretary, has been invited for this key note announcement? Be- America knows that it, it, its decisions affect 
its allies, and the closest of those is Britain. And it's about standing shoulder to shoulder politically as well as militarily. So Philip Hammond is pushing this message that the vital strategic thing is to get your economics in order. He is effectively going in and defending the American defence cuts and also bolstering that message and just saying, yeah, it's not just the big boy of, of NATO who is, is, is unhappy about this. Come on, come and do your bit. Uh, Christopher Britain started its plans announcing the defence con- uh, spending cuts in 2010. Why has it taken America so long? Uh, it hasn't actually taken them that long. Um, but the Americans do it in a different way. So January is the time when the American defence budget is actually published. It is not agreed at the earliest James? until November. The and other, that's important. The other thing that's important is they've just come out of Iraq. They couldn't have said we won't be fighting two wars at once while they were still fighting two wars at once. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much. This is BFBS SITREP. The Taliban say they've reached a preliminary agreement to set up a political office in the Gulf Arab country of Qatar. Afghan President Hamid Karzai has said that his country agrees with American efforts to negotiate with the Taliban. Uh, Christopher, how significant is this, do you think? Oh, it is. Um, first and foremost, we've got to remember there are two Taliban, merely three Taliban. There's Taliban in Pakistan, there's Taliban in Afghanistan, and there's the other lot of Taliban which don't like any of them, right? Mm. But this makes it official. Which, which it, I suppose explains the shifting rounds whenever you hear a breakthrough with negotiations. If you want to talk Taliban. to somebody, uh, what do you do? If you've got to want a private conversation, you do not talk in an open office, right? Well, some of us don't. You go outside in the corridor. What effectively Taliban is going to the Ghadar and they're going to be able to hold... Uh, it sets them up officially. It gives them recognition. It means that people that are negotiating with them, like the Americans, like the British, like the Germans, can actually hold meetings there. And that's particularly important at the moment. It's reflective of what's going on, a realism, a new realism that's going on throughout the whole of the Middle East at the moment, which extends to Afghanistan, with the Americans having to say, well, we always used to sort of uh, mouth off, at, for example, the, the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt. Now they're having to sort of start negotiations with them and Taliban because the Americans are coming out of uh, Afghanistan, Taliban is the, is, is the clue to what's going to the future of Afghanistan the Taliban could even be running Afghanistan in about five or six years time yet again, the Americans have got to be able to talk to them and reasonably negotiate a settlement and it's much easier to do it in an official way well away from the scene of the fighting Now let's talk briefly about Iraq, there have been several car and roadside bomb explosions in the capital Baghdad, at least 24 people have been killed and dozens injured According to the BBC there's been a marked increase in sectarian tension and violence since December when an arrest warrant on terrorism charges was issued against the Sunni Vice President and the last US troops were withdrawn from Iraq. Uh, Christopher, um, was it expected that all this would happen when the Americans left? It happened the day after. Yeah, everybody expected. And what we've got at the moment, if you remember, Iraq under Saddam Hussein was run by the Saudis. The majority of the population, Shia, yeah? Up further north, the, the, the Kurds. What's happened, all change. It is now the Shias who've got the, got the kitchen, and they are actually, some people would say, that the present regime, and some people in Washington are saying this, is worse than when uh, Saddam was there. And therefore, there's the accusation from the, uh, from the vice president, for example, um, who is a Sunni and was a Kurd, um, is actually saying, um, this is being organized by the Shia intelligence officers 
uh, a lot of these bombings. This is pure sectarian. It is cleaning out. It is not what people thought could happen uh, at the beginning of the war. It's what, unfortunately, the cynics said would happen when the war started. Uh, and finally, William Hague is in Burma today. He's the first British Foreign Secretary to visit the country for more than 50 years. What's he hoping to achieve there? He, he I mean, there, there is a certain amount of trade uh, involved in this, and that sounds rather cynical, but there is a certain amount of trade. Um, and it's trade uh, at a lower level. That's important. But the important thing is to reopen the sort of negotiations that can bring Burma much closer into the whole international community. And one of the reasons you do that is you try to get the human rights thing uh, going again in Burma. There are great signs that it's happening. It's not happening as fast as people thought it was. But if you think of the whole of, of, of uh, Southeast Asia, you think the India, Burma, uh, right as far as China, China, then you see you've got to have these sort of allies. And this is William Hague's uh, ideas about this. We need to have relations. Go back to September at the Conservative Party conference, reread what he said in his uh, foreign policy speech. The key to Burma was right in there. Now, Professor Sir Keith Porter, the UK's only professor of clinical traumatology, is possibly the most significant person any serviceman injured in Afghanistan could meet on the road to recovery. Professor Porter received a knighthood last year for his work on military injuries at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. For the first 10 months of last year, 648 battle injuries were treated either at QEH or at the Headley Court Rehabilitation Centre. Our reporter, Kaya Lark, has spoken to Professor Porter and asked how so many more servicemen are now able to survive the most severe of injuries. Firstly, it's the, 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 the help when the point of wounding, um, the skills of the, the merit team that will, that will pick them up from the field and take them into Bastion the advances in, in surgery and resuscitation in, in, in Bastion itself and the whole chain of care makes a big difference but behind all this is, obviously is the individual and here you have uh, usually a fit individual, uh, a young person, usually well motivated with a tremendous determination to, to, to make the most of it and I'd have to say that in, in the last decade I've not had one soldier complain about being injured they accept that was a risk, it's happened, now they have to get on with life and that, that, that is, you know, I applaud that very much. Integral to all this, of course, is the high standard of rehabilitation we have from Headley Court and uh, up front, the Headley Court consultants are here every Tuesday and they'll see patients soon after their arrival. So if you're a member, you know, if you're a family member and your son has been injured very recently, perhaps he could still be in intensive care. The Headley Court consultants will be able to give some idea of, of, of the rehabilitation uh, timings. So I could say that you know, in, in, in two months' time we'd anticipate your son will be at Headley Court. So straight away there is light at the end of the tunnel uh, for the family. There must have been advances in the way that you perform surgery though to allow these guys to survive. Oh yes, and particularly in relation to blast and blast, the, the, the blast wave, the contamination associated with that produces devastating wounds and we have actually redefined the, the textbooks on how one should manage uh, that sort of type of injury. What do you think is going to be the legacy of, of Iraq and Afghanistan? So in relation to the surgical perspective, yes, uh, you know, we've learnt about what's called damage control surgery and that is doing the least possible to keep a, a severely injured patient alive. And historically in surgery one used to do everything in a single 
uh, sitting in the operating theatre and our patients quite frequently didn't survive. So there are, there are some very clear take-home messages from this war and it's very important that these are remembered uh, and indeed uh, are, are translated into civilian practice. Are there particular patients that you have treated over the past few years that really stand out, that have been particularly difficult? We have some very, very challenging cases and, and, and problems that you will not find in a textbook nor, nor, nor in any aspect of research. And we've had to look at bespoke solutions uh, for, for some of these problems. Have you got any examples that you can share with us? Yes, I mean, patients who've lost, for example, the, the, the whole of the abdominal wall, so the front of their tummy, or they've lost major components of, their, of, their, of the, the pelvis. You can quantitate injuries on an injury severity score. It's quite a complex formula, um, which is determined post-injury, but you can get a score from 0 to 75. Anything over 15 is, is recognised as, as major trauma and life-threatening trauma. And I guess in the average intensive care unit, civilian intensive care unit, you're going to see patients, the worst case scenario, injury severity score perhaps up to 40. And we are actually seeing now patients surviving with injury severity scores right at the top end, 60 to 75, and indeed some who are 75. Uh, so, so we have a significant number of unexpected survivors. And, and that truly is a reflection of the whole chain of care of which we are, are an, clearly an important part here but we are only a part of that, that care. That was Professor Sir Keith Porter speaking to BFBS reporter Kaya Lark. Uh, Christopher, some amazing advances there in the treatment of severely injured service personnel. Biggest advance to some extent is the actual fitness of the people that now go to war, far greater than it's ever been. Second part is the point of wounding treatment. That is absolutely essential. People who otherwise would have died, you know, amputees, whisked out, point of wounding, enormously important and if you go back this is the damage control surgery we're talking about is it yeah well it may just be the sort of what you and i might just call first aid before people are casivact the other side of it is that if you go back to 1982 the war in the falklands surgeon commander rick jolly started this idea that not only do you uh, it's important to give the boat first class treatment straight away but it's to do what you can to keep him alive then next one please and then when he's recovered from that bit of surgery, you do the next bit, and that becomes important. So go back to 1982, read the Rick Jolly diaries, and we will see it, there is the foundation of what's going on now. That'll be my homework for this week. Then. It um, should ju be. Just before we finish, uh, Christopher, you wanted to mention the biggest date in British history it's today. The yeah, it is. It's the anniversary today, 1066, not the Battle of Hastings, but the death of Edward the Confessor. As a result of that came the Norman invasion last time Britain was successfully invaded anywhere. The consequence of Edward the Confessor dying made this the biggest point in English history. And there we must leave it. Christopher Lee, thank you very much. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter, tweet us at BFBS SITREP or send us an email. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye for now.